My name's Greg Poole. I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Mountain, and it's my privilege this afternoon to be opening God's Word for you again. Uh, we're continuing in our summer series in the Psalms, and today we will be looking at Psalm 40, so if you would, turn there. But as we begin, I'm going to have us watch a, a clip from the movie Shawshank Redemption. It'll be the final scene from that movie. If you've never seen Shawshank Redemption, uh, it's the story of Andy Dufresne, who's been unjustly imprisoned for the murder of his wife. He has been sent to Shawshank, a prison where there, there is corruption. He is beaten. He almost loses his life. He's beaten so bad. He suffers indignity after indignity. In Shawshank, virtually everyone has given up on life. They're simply existing. But Andy never gives in to self-pity. He never gives in to despair. He never gives up on life. So what was the difference between Andy and the rest of the men in that prison? It's very simple. Andy had hope. He had a dream. Not life in prison being better. Not life in prison being fixed. But a dream of another place. Almost as if it was another world. That hope so inspired Andy that for 25 years he slowly chiseled a tunnel for escape. All the while enduring injustice, abuse, while simultaneously seeking to give hope to those around him. One of the men that he gave hope to was Red, played by Morgan Freeman. Red had spent most of his life in prison. He's given up. He's simply existing. He's going through the motions. For him, hope is dangerous. As we come to the end of the movie, Red is uh, paroled. He's released from prison. But he wonders... How can I live outside of prison? I don't know how to do this. And he begins to find himself spiraling down in despair, ready to give up on life. He's sent to a halfway house to live and finds himself in a room where a former friend of his, Brooks, who had been released from prison several years earlier, had also lived. And Brooks also despaired even to the point of taking his own life. And Red was wondering, is this the path I will take? But then he discovers a note from Andy, and the message from Andy is an invitation to come join him. And he speaks these words to Red. He says, remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. Now Red has a choice to make. Will he live? Or will he die? Let's watch and see. Get busy living or get busy dying. For the second time in my life, I'm guilty of committing a crime. A role violation. Of course, I doubt they'll toss up any roadblocks for that. Not for an old crook like me. Fort Hancock, Texas, please. I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. 
a free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. I hope. Do you have hope? As Red said earlier, hope is a dangerous thing. You see, when hope isn't grounded in certainty, when it's not real, when it's not permanent, it will leave you disappointed and broken. But for us, hope is a good thing. Hope is the best of things because our hope is firmly rooted in the true and real life and death and resurrection of Jesus, who is making all things new. This afternoon, I want you to stand as we read Psalm 40, and we hear David's telling of the inspiring power of hope. Hear God's word. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord, my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, yet they are more than can be told. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. 
This is God's word. Let's again look to him in prayer. Oh, Father, we cry out to you that right now you would send your spirit, that he would open our ears, that we might hear wonderful things from your word. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. So why do we need hope? It's very simple. We're constantly getting knocked down. We live in a life that's constantly battering us and knocking us down. This week, as I was working on this sermon, I got a text from my wife, Elisa, and she said, the oven door is broken. So I went home, and sure enough, a hinge on the oven door is open, and it's flopped wide open, and you can't shut it back, and that makes living in the kitchen really great. Finally, I jiggered it, and I got it up, and it closed, and a couple days later, we said, well, let's try it, see if we can cook. Down it comes. And this happened just a few weeks after our microwave broke. And that happened just a few weeks after a compressor or one of our air conditionings went out. And I'm just crying out, God, that's enough. Would you stop? Now, those are irritants. They're hardships. But they're not hardships. Just this week, I've been praying for families in this church who received fresh diagnoses of cancer. I've prayed for a friend who's undergone heart procedure, for a family with a child with a significant accident, for friends who are struggling with relational and behavioral challenges with children both young and old all of us have been deeply affected by the past two to three months of this COVID crisis of disappointment of dreams shattered of hardship financially relationally and then some of us face ongoing hardships that keep coming some of some of our hardships they come they go away another hardship comes goes away but then some of us face hardships that never go away there are some people that have physical hardships that will last the rest of their life mental hardships that will last the rest of their life financial issues that might never go away and then as we've been so painfully reminded in the past few weeks there are those in our society who face the on going shadow of racial inequality and bias. So how do we respond when we're knocked down? Where do we go for hope? This psalm points us to Jesus, the one who provides a gospel-fueled hope. Now on the surface, this psalm is about David, but ultimately we see that it's a song about Jesus. I'm going to just get, give you a quick overview of the psalm so that we see how it's about David, but then how we see that it's so much more than David. It's about someone greater than David. It's about the one whom God has promised, the son of David, who would come and reign forever. So in the opening of this psalm, we find David saying that I've been in the pit. I've been caught up in the miry clay, but God has delivered me. 
And he sings a new song. He's rejoicing that God has set his feet on the solid rock. But then as we get to the end of the psalm, we find he's back in trouble again. He's being hunted by his enemies. He's surrounded. He's in despair again. He goes from event to event. That sounds like David's life, doesn't it? But then in verses 6 through 8, we see something that makes us think, wait a minute. This psalm seems to be about David, but yet it seems to be about someone who's greater, someone who's done more than David ever did. In verses 6 through 8, we read these words, In sacrifice and offering, you've not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you've not required. Then I said, Behold, I've come, and the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. David's life didn't match up to those verses. In David's day, sacrifice and offering are still required. David did not perfectly obey the law of God. He didn't always delight to do God's will. The law wasn't always rolling off his heart. This is pointing us to someone greater than David. Who is it? The writer of Hebrews gives us the answer for in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews actually puts these words on Jesus' lips. And Jesus speaks these words. As in Hebrews 10, the writer shows us that all of the sacrifices have been abolished because Jesus' sacrifice was the ultimate sacrifice. These words where Jesus says, I Delight to do your will, oh my God. Your law is within my heart. Points us to the fact that this psalm is about not simply David, but the greater David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we look back over the psalm, picturing Jesus standing in the synagogue, singing this psalm, saying, this is me, I've come to fulfill this. You you think Jesus, he was the one who was in the pit of destruction. He was in the miry bog, crying out to God, and God raised him from the pit of destruction, from the pit of death, and he set Jesus on the rock, secure in his resurrection. Jesus then sings a new song of gospel hope for us, his people. Jesus, as we see in verse 12, sings the words, For evil have encompassed me beyond number. No one has experienced the hunt of evil the way Jesus experienced it. And then even the remainder of verse 12, My iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Even though sinless, Jesus so identified with us taking our sin upon himself, that it's as if it was his own sin as he went to the cross and died in our place. He was the one who's made sacrifice and offering obsolete. His sacrifice and obedience to the law has accomplished and gained our great deliverance, our true and our everlasting salvation. So as we look to Jesus, our hope is fueled by the gospel. Our hope is set not on a temporary fix for this life, but on a new and better world to come. So as we think about this gospel-fueled hope, what, what does it provide for us? How does it shape our life? First of all, 
This gospel-fueled hope prepares you. It tells us what life in this world is like. It lifts our eyes to a new and a better place. The psalm, as I've already said, begins and ends with brokenness. It begins, David, in the pit. It ends with David struggling with enemies all around him under assault. But it also shows us that not only is our life encompassed by hardship and trials, but it shows us sometimes those trials come from without. The opening trial, we have no idea what event that's referring to in David's life. But there's some kind of something coming from outside of them that's got him in a terrible situation. We live in a fallen world. Hard things happen. Then the closing situation, he says, my iniquities have overtaken me. They're more than the hairs of my head. He has done something. He's sinned in some such way that it's brought persecution and hardship into his life. And isn't that the way, isn't that the way it is with us? Sometimes ovens just break. But sometimes we do stupid, sinful things and we bring suffering into our life and it's our fault. What this psalm is showing us is that the way of life is a way of hardship. And that simply captures the storyline of the Bible. It goes all the way back to Genesis. When Adam and Eve sinned, they fell from a position where they were living in a perfect relationship with God, a perfect relationship with one another, and a perfect relationship with creation. And all of that was shattered. And the result is as Job says in Job chapter 5, man is born to trouble as sparks fly upwards. Man is born to trouble as sparks fly upwards. This is a world filled with trouble. Or as Jesus put it in John 16, 33, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. He says, this life is going to be hard. But take heart. I've overcome the world. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, why why is it important for us to understand this perspective? Because it prepares us for life. When you have the right expectation, it keeps you from despair. I cannot tell you how many times I've engaged in conversations with people who are struggling with depression, they're struggling with anger, they're struggling with bitterness, they're struggling with despair, they're struggling with wanting to give up on life because they had the wrong expectation. They thought life was supposed to work in this world. And when it didn't, they became angry. They became angry at God. They became angry at the people around them because life wasn't coming through for them. But you see, what they have done is they have fallen prey to a lie. As David says in verse 4, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after life. And what's the lie? That you can walk in a way of pride and you can manage and control life in such a way you can make it work for you and satisfy all your longings and desires. And David said, that is a lie. And if you believe that lie, you will be shattered. But if you don't believe the lie, if you enter life prepared, trusting God, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. 
So we're not left in despair, but like David, we continue to look in faith to Jesus for our great deliverance. We wake up each morning with gospel-fueled hope. We enter into the day prepared, saying, I will enjoy that which comes my way, which is good and beautiful and pleasant. But I enter the day knowing that evil is coming after me. It is at work. It might come. And if it does, I won't be undone because my life is greater than today. My hope is set on Jesus and his promise of a world made new. But this gospel-fueled hope does more than simply prepare us by giving us the right perspective on life so that we enter in with correct expectations. It also fuels us in such a way that we're filled with joy and delight. It preserves us in the midst of our trials and our hardships. In verse 11 of Psalm 40, we read, As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. God will preserve us. He doesn't protect us. I almost, as I was making this outline, I almost made this point, God protects me. But then I thought, wait a minute, no. The oven broke. My friend's got cancer this week. People have died. He doesn't protect us. But he preserves us because he's good. And in his mercy, in his kindness, his faithfulness, he ever keeps us. And in a supernatural way, as we trust him, he pours blessing into our life. As David puts it in verses 16 and 17, But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. David is creating this picture that here he is in the middle of suffering, in the middle of hardship, but because he trusts God, there is a rejoicing and a gladness in his soul. God preserves him in the middle of it and fills him with joy, fills him with blessing, fills him with gladness. As he's in the middle of it, as he feels poor and needy and abandoned and alone, he says, but the Lord takes thought of me. So I don't give up. I don't despair. I continue on in hope. I think a great example of this is Johnny Erickson Tata. Most of you are aware of her. In 1967, as a 17-year-old, she was out with friends, dove into a swimming pool, struck the bottom of the pool, and immediately became a quadriplegic. And now for 53 years, she's lived bound to a wheelchair. She said early on she was angry and she was bitter, wondering, God, why have you done this to me? How can I go on? She began to despair, but as she began to understand the gospel, she realized she had a choice just like Red did. I can begin living or I can begin dying. And she said, I hope. And in those 53 years, she has lived a life of abundance. She has lived a life that's full and rich. I would dare say few people have lived a life 
that is as meaningful, as rich, and as impactful as Johnny Erickson. Through the ministry she created to care for those with disabilities, through her art, through her speaking, through her teaching, she has had an impact beyond measure because she trusted in the hope of the gospel. And God, in his supernatural power, has poured joy and gladness into her soul, even in the midst of her pain and her suffering. And he will do the same for you and for me as we trust him. So as we consider the hope of the gospel, God prepares us. He gives us a right perspective, right expectations. He preserves us. He pours joy and gladness into our soul. And then he propels us out into life to live for God. We see that in verses 6 through 9 as we get a picture of Jesus' mission and ministry, which is to become our mission and ministry. In sacrifice and offering, you've not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you've not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. So what characterized Jesus' ministry? It was a ministry of proclamation as he told the glad news of deliverance. But it was a ministry of deed and doing as he obeyed the law of God, as he kept the law of God, and he lived out a life representing God in the world. Jesus' mission was proclaiming and was doing. And our mission is to proclaim and to do its word, its deed. But now I want to step back and think on a grander scale, what was Jesus seeking to accomplish? We go back to creation. When God created the world, his desire was a people who lived in perfect harmony and relationship with him. A people who lived in perfect harmony and relationship with one another. And a people who lived in perfect harmony with creation. But all of that had been broken. But in Jesus' ministry, we begin to see him pushing back on all three of those areas. Through the ministry of proclamation, he proclaims that there is forgiveness of sin. He proclaims that we can be restored into a relationship with God. He proclaimed it over and over and over again. Through his work, he began to show us, give us glimpses of that future day when he would make all things new. As he calmed the sea, a picture that one day the chaos and the brokenness of this world would be done away with. As he healed sick and broken people. A picture of a day that would come when all brokenness was done away with. As he raised people from the dead to picture that death would be broken and would be no more. He began to picture for us a future. So through his proclamation He said, we can be restored to God. Through his deeds, he began to show us 
that there would be physical restoration. And then through his words and deeds, he began to seek to heal relational brokenness of every kind. Jesus, through his ministry, shattered sexism. Jesus sat down beside a well and he had a conversation with a woman woman, and that blew the disciples' minds because you can't do that. He became friends with Mary and Martha. He became friends with Mary Magdalene. He shattered sexism. In fact, he honored women so much that women were the first to observe the resurrection the first eyewitnesses. Jesus shattered sexism. Jesus broke across economic class barriers. He ministered to the poor. You think about the cleansing of the temple. The whole point of that was that the poor were being taken care of, were being abused and and, and taken advantage of. So he reached out and ministered and to draw the poor in. But at the same time, he reached out to the rich, as you think of Zacchaeus. He reached across political lines. You could have no greater disparity than between Matthew and Simon the Zealot. Matthew was a traitor to the Jewish people as he linked arms with the Roman conquerors and robbing them through exorbitant taxation. But then on the other hand, there was Simon the Zealot, who was an ardent nationalist who wanted nothing more than revolution to throw off the Roman rule. And to bring those two together in one group would be like you going out and finding the most right-wing person you could find and the most left-wing person you could find and inviting them into your Bible study. How would that go? See, that's what Jesus was doing. He was working to restore every relationship of every kind. He shattered sexism, working across economic lines, working across political lines, working across ethnic racial lines. You think of him having that drink and conversation with the woman at the well. It wasn't just a woman, but it was a Samaritan who was the lowest of the low. And he shattered ethnic division he healed the servant of a Roman centurion he healed the Syrophoenician woman time and time again Jesus is demonstrating that racial ethnic barriers do not matter I'm knitting all things back together again for wholeness and beauty and splendor to show that the human race is bigger than this. So like Jesus, we're called to proclaim with our words that our only hope is in Jesus' life and death. And we're also called to restore broken relationships. And so if that is true, What do we do in our present age? What do we do in the situation we find ourselves in today as a country? What do we do as Christians who represent Jesus? I don't know the answer to racism. 
but I've been doing a lot of reading and listening in the past few weeks. As I've listened to podcasts and I've read articles, what I've seen is there are a couple of things we can do. One is we can simply, with humility, listen. Listen to the stories of people who've experienced life differently than us. And then two, as needed, humbly repent where we personally failed. I've had conversations with a few people in the last week or so who've begun to have those types of conversations. I talked to one man who uh, said that he engaged in a conversation with a woman at his job. He said, we've been friends for years. But the other day, I just asked her, how are you doing? It's an African-American woman. How are you doing? She said, oh, I'm fine. He said, no, no, wait a minute. How are you doing with all this that's going on? And she looked at him and she said, do you really want to know? And he said, yeah, I want to know how you're doing. He said, they engaged in a conversation for over an hour. As she poured out her heart, the, the pain, the fears that she has lived with as a black woman, a black mother, a black wife. And he said they, they wept together. And there's a powerful healing aspect of that. That won't undo everything. But it's a step. And then there's the place of repentance. 35 years ago, I had a roommate who was black. And he would come in from time to time and tell me things he had encountered. And I just didn't get it. And I just blew it off. And a couple of weeks ago, he posted something on Facebook. And so I just made a comment and said, I'm praying for you and your sons that they might know a day that's different than what you've encountered. And then I said, do you remember this story? I'm so sorry I didn't understand. That I couldn't come alongside you. I mean, it was about eight hours before he replied, and I was like, oh, gosh, what's going on? And then he said, it's taken me a while to reply because I was taken back. Why was he taken aback? Because we don't ask. But he accepted my apology, and it was a wonderful post. And then the beautiful thing is, then another man came on, and he said, this is the most glorious exchange I've seen on Facebook. We listen, and as needed, we apologize. That's not going to change racism at a macro level in America, but on small ways we begin to re-knit the fabric of our society. There's more to be done. I don't know what it is, but we can start right there. God calls us. He propels us by his gospel, by the hope we have to step into relational brokenness, to take risk. This psalm gives us a picture that though this world is broken, we can live with hope. We don't have to despair. We don't have to give up. And our hope is in Jesus. And when we hope in him, we can 
be filled with joy and gladness, even in the brokenness. I'm going to close with a story from a black man as he shares a bit of his experience. But he doesn't end in despair. He doesn't end in anger. He ends by looking to Jesus. Some of you might know the name of Shai Lin. He is, a, a, as I said, a black man. He's a hip-hop, Christian hip-hop artist. And this past week, he published uh, just a bit of his story on the Gospel Coalition website. And this is what he said. He said, this is about how being a black man in America has shaped both the way I see myself and the way others have seen me my whole life. It's about being told to leave the sneaker store as a 12-year-old because I was taking too long to decide which sneakers I wanted to buy with my birthday money, and the white saleswoman assumed I was in the store to steal something. It's about being handcuffed and thrown into the back of a police car or walking down the street during college and then waiting for a white couple to come identify whether or not I was the one who committed a crime against them. It's about walking down the street as a young man and beginning to notice that white people would cross to the other side of the street to avoid walking past me. It's about taking a road trip with my sons and my greatest fear being getting pulled over for no reason other than driving while black, told to get out of the car, cuffed and set down on the side of the road, utterly emasculated and humiliated with my young boys looking out the window, terrified, which is exactly what happened to a good friend of mine when he took his family on a road trip. It's about borrowing a baby swing from a white friend in our mostly white suburb of D.C. and her telling me, sure, you can borrow it. I have to step out, but I'll leave it on the porch for you. Just go grab it. And then feeling heart palpitations as my car approached her home, debating whether or not to get the swing and being terrified as I walked up the steps that someone would think I was stealing it. It's about having to explain to my four-year-old son at his mostly white Christian school that the kids who laughed at him for having brown skin were wrong, that God made him, him in his image, and that his skin is beautiful after he told me, Daddy, I don't want brown skin. I want white skin. But it's not the whole picture. Though I'm deeply grieved, I'm not without hope. Personally, I have little confidence in our government or policymakers to change the systemic, the systemic factors that contributed to the George Floyd situation. But my hope isn't in the government. My hope is in the Lord. So brothers and sisters, in a nutshell, I'm so thankful for Jesus. I deserve to be consumed, but I'm not because of God's compassion. That's what the cross and resurrection are all about. My pain and trauma are real, but my salvation, in a sense, is even more real. Because my pain and trauma are temporary. My salvation is eternal. This is why I choose to focus on what I do in my music. It's the glory of God, the supremacy of Jesus, the centrality of the cross, and biblical theology that put my experience as a black man in America into its proper perspective. For me, life as usual means recognizing some people perceive me as a threat based solely on the color of my skin. For me, life as usual means preparing my sons for the coming time when they're no longer perceived as cute little boys but teenage thugs. Long after George Floyd disappears from the headlines, I will still be a black man in America. And you know what? I thank God for that. He knew exactly what he was doing when he made me the way he did. Despite the real and exhausting challenges that come with my outward packaging, I know that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, and I wouldn't want to be anything other than what I am.
a follower of Jesus who's been saved by grace, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, who also has brown skin and dreadlocks and does hip-hop, and God has chosen in his great mercy to leverage it all for his glory. Praise be to him. We might not face the same pain and suffering that Shylan does. But we will all face pain and suffering. We will all face hardship. So how will you respond? Will you start living? Or will you start dying? Will you look to Jesus and say, I hope to the glory of God? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. God, it points us to Jesus. God, it tells us that even though this fallen world is difficult and challenging, our hope is not here. Our hope is eternal. So God, lift our eyes and enable us to walk through this life saying, I and thus living empowered to glorify you in all we do. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.